Welcome to Lit with Kelly and Jacqueline, the podcast. If you're one of the people who have stopped by our blog at litwithkellyandjacqueline.com, thanks for reading and for finding us here. If this is the first time you've heard of us, we're glad you found the podcast. I'm Kelly. And I'm Jacqueline. So we're back in the book cave for our fourth podcast. Um, We have our podcast engineer, Tim, my husband, and our mascot, Moose. And you might hear the cat who's decided to join us today, very vocally. Um, So for this podcast, we'll be discussing Eric uh, Larson's latest book, The Splendid and the Vile. It's a nonfiction selection. Don't really care for nonfiction that much. So this was this was a little bit of a struggle for me, I got to say. Um, it explores the period between World War II, uh, May 1940 and May 1941, when Germany was repeatedly bombing London night after night. So wait, so you nonfiction's not your thing, and we chose a 700-page <laughs> nonfiction title for our nonfiction debut on the podcast. If I would have known that, that that it was that long, I probably would have said no. But technically, if you took out all the footnotes and all the bibliography stuff, you lost a hundred and something pages. Did you? Yeah, know? it was. It but still, six hundred is. A you know, lot. Yeah. And if we're covering one year of time, I mean, you're talking like, like a page and a half per day of the year. Right. That way, but. Yeah, it's, it's dense. And it's not that I don't like nonfiction. It's just it's got to read like fiction. Which Eric Larson does a good job. Yeah. Of. And, and yeah. this one did. It's still got a lot of detail in it. And I'm a fluff reader. So detail is not my strong point. Yeah, I do find with with Eric Larson's books overall that I have to read every word. And which is fine because in this one I discovered um I I don't always use this feature of my e-reader but I used it a lot in this one where you can just like touch the word and then look it up. Oh. <laughs> so that was good because there were some words in here I had never heard before and I have found that it's true in a lot of his books that I I learned some new vocabulary. So right. that's pretty fun. Right. So so all right so but because we read a book about World War II, we decided to do a little research <laughs> on a cocktail from World War II. Um, so today we're drinking something called a suffering bastard, <laughs> which um, I'm going to be honest with you. We did a, you know, a little bit of searching for uh, drinks and alcohol that were popular in this time frame that were even available because what we found was a little bit um, of information saying that like a lot of alcohol wasn't even available. They were mass producing one kind of beer for people or for um, soldiers and they were shipping it out. And like rum and tequila were widely available, but other things were limited. So the one we found today is, like I said, called The Suffering Bastard. And we found it on a website called wearethemighty.com. Um, and it says it was it originated in Egypt with a well-known bartender. Um, so if their reporting is correct and... I was a bad librarian. I did not ver- I did not double check these names and dates anywhere else. Um, but I really liked this story, so I'm going to choose to believe that it's true. That um, this bartender, uh, he was a chemist, and he enjoyed like the mixing of um, drinks to keep people coming back to their bar. Um, But because it was so hard to get a hold of good liquor, especially where he was in Egypt, um, they found that, (laughs) this is really funny, um, people were getting really terrible hangovers (laughs) because they were drinking such terrible liquor. And so he he wanted to create this drink 
um, that would help alleviate that. I'm and not so, sure that this drink is going to uh, do right. that. Right. So the recipe calls for um, equal parts, and it and they do they use the phrase an unlikely combination of <laughs> bourbon and gin and lime juice with a dash of bitters, and you top it off with ginger beer. I don't know how we wound up with so much gin in the last two episodes, but <laughs> here we are. It so, seems to be a popular liquor. I guess. Yeah. And that's fine. Um, I'll tell you, after the last, uh, after we recorded the last episode, a friend of mine who was listening was like, I'm so glad that you've discovered that gin is good because I've been telling people this for a while. And I (laughs) I thought, well, okay, you're right. So um, anyway, so this is, it's bourbon, gin, lime juice, bitters, and ginger beer. And um, we did put it over ice because that just seems like I think it will go go down down easier. So (laughs) So I'm not sure. Well, we'll see. Okay. I didn't think that gin and champagne were going to work either, and well, then they we, were fine. Yeah, you're right, so, you're right. all right. So all Kelly right. has mixed up the drinks. The drink. So I am actually going to have a beer chaser. So let me just open my beer. Okay, because I just feel it's going to be really, 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 really bad. And I do want to point out that today we are using um, a gin that was brewed in Dearborn Heights, which is not that far from where we live. So local gin called Mustache Gin. Um, It's from Rusted Crow Spirits, 44% alcohol. Hmm. And um, this one, you know, we we drank a lot of this bottle already, so it's probably good. Well, so. I think the bourbon's going to drown out just about well, anything. All right, so here we go. All right, so you've already topped it, right? I've Everything's already topped in here? it with okay. the Cheers to our Cheers fourth. to the fourth episode. Oh, oh, I like it. I do, too. I really like it. <laughs> I can't believe it's taken me this long to figure out that gin and lime is an acceptable combination. Yeah, but it's also got bourbon and the ginger beer and yeah. the bitters. Oh, it's very good. Huh. Nice job. I gotta I gotta find the name of this of this bartender. Huh. Um oh, Joe Siolam. I'm probably not getting that exactly right, but uh yeah, he's the chemist turned bartender who created this from nothing, basically, <laughs> when they were trying to figure out how not to give people hangovers. So You don't really taste the bourbon. I mean there's a little bit of a bourbony flavor in there, but it's not strong. I think you mostly taste the ginger beer and the lime. I like it. Yeah, it's pretty good. This podcast has taught me so much. Oh, really? Really. (laughs) So, yeah, so I like it. So we will sip on this as we discuss a time period which neither one of us was you know, experiencing. (laughs) No, no, we weren't. (laughs) So, So once again, we're talking about May 1940 to May 1941 when uh, Germany was bombing London night after night after night, trying to get them to give in mm-hmm. at the, during the war. So um, there should be no spoilers in this book, right? We all know. I think we, we all, all know, know what how happens. World War II turned out. <laughs> uh, so I don't think we have to do a spoiler you know, warning in this one. But um, I guess if you d- don't know the story or you're not familiar with Churchill and what he did in the first year of the war, maybe stop listening and then come back <laughs> after <laughs> Do you, your research after first. you read it. But uh, in the meantime, we're going to get right into some of the things that stuck out for us in this one. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I had two themes that came to mind this whole time that I was reading. Uh, one was uh, leadership. Okay. And um, the other one was resilience. 
I yeah. mean, if okay. you're bombed night after night after night, right? But the leadership obviously comes from Churchill. And um, at the very beginning, there was one quote. It was a French phrase that he uh, used often. And it was, one leads by calm. Yes. But yeah, and then it was almost like he bumbled his way into it. So he was like a leader by trial and error. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, it was a rough time to come to power. <laughs> right. And so, you know, um, no one really had faith in him in the beginning. But then he gave this one great speech. And I mean, I think everybody had their love-hate relationship. You either liked him or didn't like him was the impression that I got. Sort of. He had his okay. detractors. Sure. Right. Yeah. Um, but I don't think he was a natural leader. I think he was just, he tried it and he became that person. Not that. And he took it very personally. Yes. He, I see what you're saying. Like he, he had to work at it. Definitely. So later in the book, like, you know, much further into it after the bombs have been falling and falling and falling. And he's visiting these towns that have been, you know, made into craters, basically. They're just, they're just leveled. And he's walking around and he's teary eyed and he's engaging with the people who live there. And he's, you know, he's taking responsibility for these people very, very seriously. And um, I think sometimes you, as a, as a leader, can forget what it is you're working for. And he was constantly out being reminded. Right, right. Um, and the other one, resilience. I just thought, <laughs> I thought, these people, they made it work. So, like, you know, you had the shelters, you know, mm-hmm. like... I found it funny that they put new newsletters out for their shelters. Yes. Because it was a community to them because they would go to work during the day and come back to the shelter at night. And it was the same people all the time. And so they had newsletters for them. And then the same with the hotels, you know, but like the there were the three hotels, the Dorchester, the Claridge. Savoy and the Claridge's. Yeah. yeah. And uh, they rented their rooms out at night because they were the... Ones that were expected to, especially the Dorchester, wasn't that the one that was like the one that was heavy I steel? I think so, yeah. And the first floor, of course, the higher up you got, you know, the worse it, the less it was sheltering you. But um, they'd rent their news, their uh, rooms out for wealthy people because that's really all that could afford it. And then they would spend the night and they'd have drinks and socialize with everybody. And um, they just, they took advantage of opportunities. Yeah. To- And, you know, but with that resilience is the underlying um, underlying fear and of not wanting to be alone. Oh, right. So people, yeah, uh, you know, came to these hotels because they didn't want to spend the night alone because it was, you know, scary. They came to the shelters to shelter, but also because they didn't want to spend the time alone. Um, So it was a very vibrant social life. Weirdly. Weirdly. Amongst the ruins. Right, exactly. I mean, people were looking for things to do. So it was just, you know, they just wouldn't let it get them down. Yeah, and I agree with you. There there were some scenes that stuck out for me where people were, you know, I think one of them, again, was when Churchill was walking around and he was checking with people on how they were doing. And he's, you know, he's in places where there's still fires burning from the night before and people are like, just give it back. We can take it. We'll, you know, we'll stick it out. We're fine. Just go, you know, and... It's it's amazing to me that because in the descriptions that he's giving and, and they're thorough. Right. I mean, he's 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 a very descriptive writer and he gives you a lot of detail. And, and he's talking about, you know, how one house could be standing untouched yes. and the house directly next door was a pile of bricks. And people just seemed like they were just resigned to the fact that, like, this is how it's going to be. We can't change it. We don't want to 
to give in. So this is how we're going to help. And we're, yeah, we're just not going to complain. We're going <laughs> to keep calm and carry <laughs> on, okay. I guess. Yes. <laughs> so. it, yeah, it was just it was like it was almost surreal. That's one yes, of the words I had. That's a great like word a for surreal. it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I had some sort of parts or quotes early on when they were talking about um, changing the speed with which they were producing airplanes. Oh, right, 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 right. Um, and and so much of this book, it's not just. I mean, it's Churchill's first year, but it talks so much about his inner circle and the people who were doing important jobs, you know, during the war and people he had put in place. Uh, this one stuck out for me because this was sort of with, with this change in leadership. They felt like a surge of energy within the government. And this quote, it was as though the machine had overnight acquired one or two new gears capable of far higher speeds than had ever before been thought possible. It can definitely reinvigorate things when you're trying something new. This one, <laughs> this cracked me up. Early on in the book, they're talking about, they're giving us these descriptions of Churchill, right? And one of the things that just like jumped out at me as hilarious was... Oddball. Well, yes, he's a, he's a character <laughs> for sure. But who in your first year of running a country that's trying to avoid caving to the enemy has time to take all the baths? <laughs> He took so many. Like, I feel like it was three, two or three a day. I want to find it. But yeah, the, the people were like, they'd be like called in while he's, you know, in the tub or whatever to take a letter. Or, well, or the fact that like, his private secretary, he'd be laying in bed like he was in bed and yeah. his secretary is on the bed with him typing. Yeah. You know, yep. those kind of things. And the other one that struck me was at the very end where he was uh he was in the uh, hotel room and he was naked and he invited somebody in and they carried on a whole conversation while he was naked. Yes. I'm just like... And he never thought anything about it. it. And I think he might have had a scarf on and a drink in hand or something like that. I don't Maybe. know. Yeah. Okay. So I found it. It's two... He took two baths a day, no matter where he was and regardless of the urgency of the events unfolding elsewhere. Like, it just... I was like, you know, I am all for self-care. I really am. But it was just like that thing that just struck me as something that was like... You wouldn't think with everything he had going on that that would be his priority. But, you know, he, you know, he did a lot of apparently a lot of good thinking while he was doing that. So, right. I mean, good for him. I just thought that was funny. Yeah. You know who he reminds me of? And, and it's probably because I'm pretty sure. So, John Lithgow. Every time I hear Winston Churchill, I think of John Lithgow. Well, right. Wait, because he's in the crowd. Yeah. Right. I yeah. know. But even before that, I would just feel like um, that's who I picture. Always before that. Even before even he was before in the crowd? Yes. Oh, see, that's... Yes. I, I was picturing him while I was reading this book, but that's because the most recent thing I saw about him was, was the crown. crown. Yeah. 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 In any case, I thought I just thought that it, it's like not it's not the takeaway I would have expected from this book, but it was just it just struck me as and and it kept coming up like over and over and over. He was yeah he was in the bath or in bed and and doing all these things and it just yeah it it made me laugh. Okay, so. There was a scene where he was giving a speech and the people in Britain were talking about how they they didn't they didn't like the speech or they felt like he was it wasn't as engaging as some of the previous ones had been. And um, they didn't like the way he spoke and they were like, maybe he should have practiced this or whatever. And it turned out it was all because he like refused to take the cigar out of his mouth. Right. <laughs> no one could understand what he was saying, right? <laughs> that was that was interesting. Um there was a point really late in the book and I'm going to find it. So 
tell me something else about what you think so we don't have to cut this part out. Oh, okay. So in the very beginning of the book, when German when Germany first came across and they occupied one of the islands, did you recognize the island, the Guer- Guernsey Island? Oh, yeah. From the Guernsey yeah. Literary yes. Potato Peel yes. Society. I just thought that was kind of interesting, too. Um, and, you know, and you notice in there, and if you remember reading that book, they weren't concerned because they um, occupied that island. England, you know, nobody in government was concerned because they took over the Guernsey Island. But that's the same feeling you got when you read the book. No one cared. Yeah. Because it was just such. But it was just interesting. It was just like an afterthought. Yeah. Yeah. It's eh, it's okay. How many times did. Who was it? Um, Beaverbrook. Was it Beaverbrook or Beaverbrook? I can't remember. Yeah. How many times did he try and resign? I believe it was like 14 times, wasn't it? Something. Yeah. I think in the end they finally said he tried to resign 14 times. But they always sort of. They were always just like an attention grab. Well, <laughs> until the very end, like I'm not getting what I need, so I'm going to quit. But then you're going to give me what I need, so I don't actually have to go anywhere. Yeah, right. that was an interesting time because nobody liked him anyway. Right, right. He right. wasn't. He was getting all the good stuff, and he was sort of cheating and right. amongst the rules of, of <laughs> etiquette. And and then Mary, let's talk about Mary for just yes, a second. Mary, I loved reading about. Mary. I loved reading, but you know, I guess I didn't realize that she was that young. No. She had so much. I was thinking she was in her mid-20s or something, but she had so much freedom. She was going to nightclubs. She was, I mean, she was, and when it first, when the book first, she was 17. Mm-hmm. And pretty much it's 17 to 18 is her, I think she was 18 yeah. by the end of the book, but. And re- kind of remarkably, she, she came to acknowledge that, like, her war experience was dramatically different oh, from absolutely. so many people's because she was, I mean, they did their very best to keep her out of harm's way. Um, but I thought that was really self-aware <laughs> for someone. Well, yeah, absolutely. Um, she, you know, and then she wound up running like an anti-aircraft gun at the end, <laughs> right? right? Like right. late in the year. <laughs> right. Um, right. I liked her. I liked reading about her. I liked that it added a perspective of somebody who had... They were not interested in the government at all. Um, I mean, she was certainly interested in how people perceived her father and how how his message was being received and things like that. But she, didn't, she wasn't making any decisions. She was... No. No. Just and living life. For most of the time, she was out in the country until she begged to come home. Wasn't that it? Yes. Um, was she staying with her friend at the time? Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so I found the thing that I, I thought was interesting okay. um, late in the book. It was like in the page 540-ish area. And they told the story about the train that caught fire with the with the students on board because yes. they were playing that game, like flicking matches around yes. or whatever. It was noteworthy to me that the writer thought it was noteworthy of Churchill <laughs> to take the time to write to the father of some of those students who was the Belgian prime minister. So, like, and not that he shouldn't have in any way, because that's a tragedy. And, of course, right. you want to extend your condolences. Right. But that kind of pointed to me that, yes, while this, like, collective war and all the issues that come with that were going on, there were still, like, other day-to-day issues that had to be handled and dealt with and acknowledged and, and written about. And Churchill still took the time even amongst all the chaos that was happening to acknowledge these day-to-day problems, which when you think about running a country during the war, how do you have time for anything else? But he found it. Okay. So let's do, uh, let's talk about cafe, the cafe bombing. Ooh. So talk about surreal. Yes. Because there you have two different extremes, right? You've got the woman who 
All she has is her stockings are blown off, off her legs, right? How does that even happen? I don't know how that happens. She's And she's on the phone and the stockings blow off her mm-hmm. legs, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have the man who's on the dance floor dancing, I believe, and his legs are blown off, right? Right. So two different extremes, all depending on where you're at in the cafe. But it's also like fate. It's like... Because I think about Mary, she was on her way to that cafe, right? Mm-hmm. And then the bombing had already happened, but she couldn't get through, didn't realize that people she knew were in there, and went off a different direction to go to a different nightclub with no idea what was going on. Well, and I think the decision was made by this group of, of young adults who had come from this debutante ball, right? And said, our friends would want us to, yes. to keep going. They yes. would want us to go out. And I thought that it's it's telling of the whole thing, right? Like going back to what you were saying about, you know, they were very just like staunchly going on with their day. Like we're not going to let this, this bombing ruin right. our night and we're sad about our friends, but they would want us to keep, keep going, going until six o'clock in yeah. the morning. <laughs> Yeah, and it, <laughs> right. I, I mean, that's right. when you're when you're feeling invincible. I guess that's how you right how you react to something like that. But um, and the and the the singer, he dec- one of somebody was decapitated. It was him, I believe. Oh, okay. But he had he was coming from another bar or something, and he got there. Was he late? Yeah, I don't anyway, it just details. it felt like if he had been a few minutes before yeah, it's one of those you know, or a few minutes like, later, it would have so been a whole know, different like, turn. That's what yeah. I mean, fate. You know? Right. Right. That was your fate. Yeah. And also just sort of as an aside, um, we, we were talking when we we're learning who these people are and how, you know, they're how he's hosting them at this country home. But also they're like they're helping provide connections and, you know, getting them to people that he needs. And and in some cases, he's their connections to Roosevelt in America and. Um, but one of the names was um, Violet Bonham Carter. Oh, yes. And I was like, huh. I had that same thought. I wonder huh. if. So I looked it up, and sure enough, she is the grandmother of actress Helena Bonham Carter, which I thought was just like an interesting little little tidbit. It's, you know, it's such a unique name, but maybe maybe not in England. I don't maybe know. But, England, right. um, but yeah, I looked it up, and sure enough, they their family tree is the same. So I thought that was that was an interesting one. The other thing I will say yeah. is, well, two things. One is the zoo animals. So the re- re- they went and they killed all the poisonous, poisonous snakes in the spiders, just in case their bird or their bird, their cage got destroyed. Yes, and so they wouldn't run off and bite. Yeah, anyone. But who's, uh, whose job is it to think of things like that? I have no idea. Like, I I don't know. I don't I know that I would that have was... thought of. Oh, we're at the zoo and there's there's things here that can do some <laughs> damage. damage. <laughs> so we probably should take care of that. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. And then the other one at the very end, I thought it was very sad. And it was probably more in the, not the, it's like when uh, Churchill's regime is done, so to speak. Like, mm-hmm. And he doesn't know what to do with himself and he's just moping and wandering around. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like you're in this for so long and all your heart and soul and then, and then... You were just voted out and you have nothing. You know, your whole being was based on what you were doing then, right? Yeah. And then now you don't have that anymore. So that was just sad. Yeah. I I was glad that he did that sort of wrap up for everyone because there were, if this was a fiction book, there's at least a dozen like main quote unquote characters in right. the story, right? Right, right? So I was glad to get a wrap up of 
of where everybody sort of landed. It's sort of like any big event in your life, right? Like right. you you plan and you work and then afterward you just like, yeah, okay, what? now what? Right? It's so kind of a letdown. Yeah. You gotta find yourself but, all over again. So that was interesting. Yeah. Um yeah. So I uh, you know, I would I would recommend it. Oh, definitely. I would it, it like I said, it's dense. It has a lot of detail, and I like I said, I read fluff <laughs> for the most part. So no it took me. I mean, fluff. I had to set a goal for myself to. I had to read fifty pages a day in order to get it done. Okay, and I found, um, like I said, I did have to do a little research. You know, as I was reading it, I had to get definitions, and and I was sort of looking at time frames, and um, and you know, and over the course of this book, he's working really hard to to engage the U.S., you know, even if it's just through supplies or whatever the case is. And and um, I kept having to think about where our country was and and associating it with the event that does finally draw us in and where we were, you know, time-wise that way. So, Well, you know, here's I, one interesting yeah. fact that I wrote down about the U.S. because this was in 1940, and I don't know why it came up. I think it was because it was more about how we were going to help. Okay. <laughs> and it said in 1940... The U.S. Army was only 174,000 men, equipped with obsolete weapons, including Springfield rifles from 1903. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> right. I don't know that we would have... Yeah. I'm not sure we would have been that much help, but... Well, and even like even the things that eventually we gave them, they were like decommissioned ships that were like destined to be scrapped. Right. And, they, like, yeah, they were on the scrap line. They were going to be destroyed, yeah. right? Yeah, but so. it's, yeah, it was interesting that he... And, and I, I think again and again, they kept coming back to... It wasn't that he really wanted any things from Roosevelt other than just to keep reminding him that this like this is coming like you you're probably gonna have to get involved so just right you know just right. know what's right. happening over here and don't abandon us right so so yeah so we would recommend yeah it's a good read good historical I, book i think that no matter the eric larson that you read it's gonna be long it's gonna be dense it's yes. gonna be very detail oriented um but and I I wrote a review on Dead Wake on the yeah, on the blog not favorites. too long ago, and I <laughs> joked that like afterward I felt like a a naval warfare expert, which <laughs> right. I definitely was not. But right. you know you just you learn so much while you're reading them that it's right. definitely worth the time. Right. Um. So yeah, I would definitely I would give this one a thumbs up for sure. Yeah. And if you're interested in other World War II titles, um, I read the Room on Rue Amelie, which is by Kristen Harmel. That was good. That was, I think it was in Paris. Uh, and she was hiding um, airplane pilots. Oh. English airplane pilots. I believe that's the one that was. And, of course, the Alice Network, if you haven't read that one, by Kate Quinn. Um, that's about women spies during World War II. So that one's good, too. And I just did... Um, I just did a write-up on the blog about World War II fiction. Um, my number one is always going to be The Nightingale. Oh, absolutely. Right? Uh, Kristen Hanna, good job on that one. Right, <laughs> right. But, um, you know, you, you said The Alice Network. Um, that was followed by The Huntress, which I thought was good. It was another, a whole different perspective on female pilots and, and how, um, you know, they learned to fly and where they had their school and whatever. But... Um, I, I did like the perspective that it came from, so that was that was new. Um, from a totally different perspective, Daughter of Molokai is one about 
Japanese internment camps in the U.S. Okay. But you need to read Molokai first. That's Daughter of Molokai is a sequel to a book called Molokai. It's about uh, the island of Molokai in Hawaii on the, I think it's the Kalau Papa Peninsula. And at one time, anyone who was um, thought to have leprosy or now Hansen's oh. disease was sent to live in this one place because they didn't understand how it worked and if it was contagious and they just felt it was like the best idea to round everybody up and put them in this, in this spot. And uh, which, you know, we now know was not the thing, but <laughs> right. Um, so it's interesting that in Molokai, the the main character is is one of the patients and she's sent to live in this in this colony. And then in Daughter of Molokai, um, not to give too much away about the first one, but the main character uh, was was born to the woman in Molokai and then she's sent away to live with someone else she's adopted and um and then her family is sent to live in an internment camp so that's hmm. that's another really good one a couple other ones for anybody who's into young adult books one of my very favorites about world war ii is codename verity oh my dude did you know that was a series yes i read the I no read the follow-up books oh. yeah and um, they're good. Oh, okay. They're good. But Codename Verity was one where I sat down on a Sunday morning intending to read yeah. for like an hour before I got going on my day. And like six hours later, right. I looked up and it was yeah. like, oh, I'm done with the book. I'm sobbing and it's midday. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yes. So that yeah, was a that, good one. That's my favorite. Too. Yeah, that's a great one. So yeah. those are some good choices. But there's also a list of a few more on that blog post if you're interested in those. Since we're sort of dedicating this one to nonfiction, uh, what do you have any other nonfiction recommendations you want to share? I know you're not too much of a nonfiction reader but no okay most recently one of my favorites was um michelle mcnamara's i'll be gone in the dark and that's a book about the golden state killer oh um michelle mcnamara um was like researching this these cases and she got really into all the details and it got it gets pretty pretty deep um and hbo has now turned it into a miniseries so it's just recently out for viewing but the book was the book was so creepy that i was sitting outside in my own backyard in the middle of the day one time and i heard a noise and shot up out of my chair and like immediately started looking around like where did that come from who was that what made it because i was it's it's a very um it's a very creepy story so that's a good one my book club read destiny of the republic by candace millard um early on in our book club and you'll remember that i told you that they have made me read outside my comfort zone and right. on occasion they've handed me a book and i was like eh, no, okay and this was one where they handed us this book and we all went oh great and we came <laughs> back to the next book me the meeting and we loved it it's about the assassination of president garfield who i didn't know anything about right um and but also how, how it tied into Alexander Graham Bell's development of the telephone and how they were trying to use that technology to save Garfield, which I thought was very interesting. Colin Jost wrote a book this year. He's the guy from Saturday Night Live. It's called A Very Punchable Face. <laughs> that was a pretty good one. I was lucky enough to score an advanced copy of that one. And um, he he writes like he is on SNL. So that's if you if you like him and you like that kind of humor, definitely check that one out. Um I really loved The Library Book by Susan Orlean. Um yes. So I've that one that tells one. the history of the fire at the main branch of the Los Angeles Public Library. 
and how they think it was arson, but they were having a hard time determining it and who would have set the fire. And But also, while this story is going on, she's giving the history of public libraries as a as a whole, which was pretty, for me, pretty fascinating. And um, last but not least, um, one of my very favorite memoirs is called Bitter is the New Black by Jen Lancaster. And I loved that book so much that I immediately followed up by buying all the rest when I, when I read her first one. Um, she wrote it after she and her husband both lost their jobs. Um, and um, she started she started writing this blog as like a way just to sort of like get things off her chest while she was unemployed. And um, and she turned it into this. And I think the subtitle of this one is um, one of a part of it is why you should never carry your Prada bag to the unemployment office. Um, so she went from living, you know, right. a life with two incomes and a lot of money and all the stuff. And then they were barely like barely eking it out for rent in a whole other neighborhood. So she's very funny. She's very frank. Uh, her Instagram is really funny. Um, and now um, she has delved into fiction as well. So it's been pretty good. So those are some other nonfiction choices I would recommend for you. Okay. So mm-hmm. we need to talk about what we're reading right now. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, I'm no surprise here because I had to finish that darn book for this yeah, podcast. Yeah, yeah. So I'm still on Hello Summer by Mary Kay Anders. Okay. I have not been able to finish it yet. Okay. <laughs> um, well, so I read this one and this was this was a lot. And um, I just today finished a, a YA audience novel. And when I say that, it's just because it's intended for YA doesn't mean adults can't oh, read I love and love YA it. Fiction. So, um, so e- while I'm saying that, it's mostly to guide you to the area that you're going to find right. it in the library <laughs> or the right. bookstore. But it's called The Stars and the Blackness Between Them. The author's last name is Petrus, P-E-T-R-U-S. Um, Book of Lost Friends is up next on my list. And then I'm going to be getting a hold of our next podcast book, right? which is going to be I'm Thinking of Ending Things. And so when we come back in a couple of weeks to talk with you about that one, we're also going to give you our review of the or the new upcoming Netflix release. So they've they've turned this into a movie. And this I read this book a while ago. I read it a couple years ago. And it creeped me out then. Yes. I'm kind of anxious to see how it's going to translate to screen. (laughs) Well, and I'm kind of go interested to go back and reread it now that I know what's going sure. on because yeah. you don't know what's going on. Oh, that always on. changes it. Yeah. 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 So it'll be interesting yeah. to see that too. Yeah. So yeah. So we'll be back with that for episode five in a couple of weeks. And we'll have to figure out what cocktail we'll be drinking then too. Yeah. I feel like this one I had to involve like warm milk or something calming. <laughs> I don't know how we're going to top these last two. I don't know. These were pretty good. Yeah. yeah. I, I finished mine. Jacqueline still has some oh, I'm, of hers yeah, I'm still sipping. <laughs> no, I, I'm done. I need I'm to on be to my to, beer chaser now. <laughs> need to be able to speak during this. Right. So. So. Anyway, so thanks for stopping by, you guys. We hope you um, have a chance to check out The Splendid in the Vile. Um, and check ho- out our blog. Yeah. There's always posts on there. Yep. Find us at read. litwithkellyandjacqueline.com. And um, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with our next review. I am thinking of ending things. And we hope that you enjoy whatever it is you're reading in, in the next little while. See thanks. Ya. Cheers. Bye. Bye.